Praise the Lord. This is the theme of the chapter in the entire book of Psalms, as we will see. We know a little bit about what this word praise means. As a Christian church, we make it our regular practice to assemble together each Sunday for the purpose of corporate worship of God. We have engaged in the singing of hymns. We have bowed our heads in prayer. We have read scripture together. In some churches today out there in the world, people are being baptized. In other churches today out there in the world, people are partaking in the Lord's table. As the Christian church, the universal Catholic church in the original meaning of that word, it is our practice, our joy, and our duty to faithfully and regularly meet together for the purposes of corporately and publicly lifting up praise to the Lord our God. And genuine praise is not merely the act of going through the motions. A true spiritual worship is a condition of the heart, a sober-minded assessment of our faults and our failures, and a consideration of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. As we read in Colossians 3, 16 and 17, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is who we are. This is what we do. In this we are united with all the Christians of the past and all the Christians of the future. We are united even with the heavenly hosts, the angels, and all of God's people spanning all dimensions in space and time. Before we jump into studying this text, allow me to set the stage of where we are in the book of Psalms, what the book of Psalms is all about, and where we are in the redemptive arc of Scripture. The book of Psalms is a collection of poems compiled at some point after the exile of Israel in Babylon. Roughly half the Psalms were written by King David, roughly a third by anonymous authors, and the remainder by various names, including one by Solomon and two by Moses. The book of Psalms is broken up into five parts, or five books, and these book delineations are noted in your Bibles. The five books are modeled and arranged after the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which were the only divine texts that the ancient writers would have had at that time. The final poem in each of these books concludes with the same message, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever. And so the book of Psalms is designed to be a prayer book for us, God's people, a source of reflection and comfort as we strive to be faithful to the commands of the Bible, as we hope and wait for God's future messianic kingdom. Now the individual Psalms, each chapter that we read, fall primarily into two categories— Psalms of Lament and Psalms of Praise. The Psalms of Lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is, how unjust and wicked life can be, and they ask God to do something about it. Psalms of Praise express joy and celebration, drawing attention to what is good in the world, retelling stories about what God has done and what he will do, and thanking him for it. 
this tension between the psalms of lament and praise is important. As we consider the tragic state of the world and our lives, we are filled with sorrow and despair. But as we consider the promises of God, his mighty works of old, and the future redemption of his people, we are filled with joy and hope. This tension between lament and praise is helpful for us in developing a biblical faith. Our faith is always forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom and the return of the messianic king. Psalm 113 is found in Book 5. It is a psalm of praise, and it is the first of a series of poems called the Hallel. The Hallel were a special group of psalms sung by the people of God during the Jewish feasts, including the Passover. The people would have committed these particular psalms to memory, and they were designed to bring hope to the people as they endured difficult times and as they longed for the coming of God's messianic king. Now, it is presumed that Jesus himself, the true messianic king, during the Last Supper, would have sung this very psalm just before his betrayal. As he and his disciples sat in the upper room, Mark 14, 26 reads, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That hymn was, in all likelihood, this psalm, the Hallel. We'll consider the potential implications of this in a moment. As I hope to convey for us this morning, the servants of God will praise his name forever because he deserves our praise, because he is mighty in power, because he loves us, and because he has redeemed us through the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ. As we consider this particular passage this morning, I want to break it down into three sections. For those of you taking notes, this will be our outline. Verses 1 to 3, the Lord will be praised by his servants forever. Verses 4 to 6, the Lord sits enthroned over all creation forever. Verses 7 to 9, the Lord is the redeemer of his people forever. Point number one, the Lord will be praised by his servants forever. Verses 1 to 3 read, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Let us consider his name. This phrase, his name, appears in all three of the verses. And as we see used throughout the Psalms, represents the full sum of God's reputation, his fame, and his glory. This is how we know him. This is how we identify him. This is how he identifies himself, by his name. Though the Bible refers to him by various other titles, his primary name, as given to us as he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, is the great I Am, or Yahweh. This is the name he gave to us, the name by which the people of Israel would know him. As we read in Exodus 3, 13 to 15, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is a name like no other. It should fill us with awe. Recall that same burning bush where Moses asked to see his face and had to hide himself in the cleft of the rock as the Lord God passed him by. He could not look at God. To look on the face of God would destroy us. His glory and holiness, like the heat of a thousand suns, it would incinerate us. The mere mention of his name should cause us to tremble. We cannot forget who he is. He is the creator of all things. He holds the universe together by the power of his will. He is beyond us in wisdom, power, and glory. He could strike us down in the blink of an eye with a thought. He's not to be trifled with, and he's not to be taken for granted. And it's for this reason that the Hebrew people considered his name to be the name that cannot be spoken. The capitalized Lord in our Bibles is a testament to the ancient writer's appropriate reverence and fear of the Lord. They were afraid to even speak his name, so they substituted Lord for it in writing. Let us consider the servants. Who exactly are the servants of the Lord? I know right off the bat that whatever a servant of the Lord is, I want to be one. Another word for servant as used here could be the word slave. Paul writes in the book of Romans that we are either slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. We either belong to Satan or we belong to God. We are either his people or we are his enemies. We know from the Bible what God will do to his enemies. It won't be pretty. God will one day summon all the peoples of the earth. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, his enemies to Mount Sinai, his servants to Mount Zion. The enemies of God will receive judgment and destruction. The servants of God will receive grace and redemption. Psalm 34:22 writes, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We'll consider more about how God redeems the life of his servants later in our time together. As we conclude this point, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll start in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. 
For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks us, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let us consider forever. The servants of God will praise his name forever, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Notice the poetic language of the Psalms and this imagery of the sun to convey eternity. As we read in Malachi 1.11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Friends, the kingdom of God, the kingdom the book of Psalms is pointing us towards, that we're hoping for, is an eternal kingdom. The kingdom will be an extension of David's kingdom. As we read in 2 Samuel 7, 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The kingdom will belong to God and his son. As we read in Revelation eleven fifteen, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Friends, the eternal kingdom of God is coming. The messianic king, the Christ, will reign forever. If we're going to praise the Lord forever, as this psalm indicates, that means we'll be there. We'll have a place in it. Praise the Lord. Point number two. The Lord sits enthroned over all creation forever. Verses four to six read, The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Let us consider, seated on high. He sits high above all the nations. He is seated on high. He looks far down. There is a great divide between him and us. We can imagine his courts in heaven, gilded in gold, the walls engraved with the accounts of his campaigns and victories, the room filled with his glory, with him sitting on his mighty throne. Revelation 4 gives us a glimpse into that throne room. God is seated on his throne, and from the throne come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. He sits surrounded by the living creatures and the elders who cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, They existed and were created. He sits in glory, honor, and power. He is sitting on a throne. He is sitting down because he's already won all the battles. He's already conquered all the nations. 
He already owns everything. He's at a state of rest. He is resting on his laurels. He is king on the mountain, and he is never going to be unseated. Let us consider the nations. His glory is above all the nations, above the heavens and the earth. His dominion extends beyond the scope of what we can even imagine. We often think of heaven as God's realm, but he exists even beyond that. Heaven, too, and its inhabitants are just creations. The angels, those superior creatures, are still just that, creatures. There is the creator, and then there's everything else. God sits over all creation, both in heaven and earth. The nations are nothing to him. Take a look at 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, where we read of King Hezekiah, and the Assyrians have come to conquer the land, and they mock Israel, saying, Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hands of the king of Assyria? In chapter 19, we hear God's response. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. There is no contest. God reigns over all. Let us consider who is like the Lord our God. Our God stands alone. There is none like him. As we contemplate who he is and what he's like, it's incumbent on us to make sure that we shape our minds around who he is, not to reshape him around who we might want him to be. Put another way, many people have made it their practice to mentally reshape God into their own image, preferring a tamer, milder, less sovereign, and less judgmental God. Maybe a God who cares a little less about our sins. Maybe a God who thinks a little more with our own sense of right and wrong. Maybe a God who wouldn't destroy 185,000 Assyrians indiscriminately. To mentally alter who God is, to make him match our own ideas, is idolatry. It's not our place to edit his character to make him more compatible with our relativistic individual truth. There is an absolute truth, and he's it. He's the yardstick by which we measure, and we must order our lives around him and who he is. This is part of what it means to worship him in spirit and in truth. You might turn to Isaiah 40. And consider with me how God describes himself. This chapter is a powerful meditation 
on his character as we hear him speak in his own voice. God is the creator. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God reigns over his creation. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. God brings princes to nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, and he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them away like stubble. God will not be judged by his creation. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. God is a good shepherd of his creation. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Our God is a great God, and there is none like him. Let us consider. God condescends. Take a look at verse 6 of our psalm. The New American Standard Bible translates this verse as, Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth? What a rich translation. Perhaps another word we might use is, He condescends. He condescends to behold the things that are in heaven and on earth. Like a great king, touring the far reaches of his kingdom, the king leaves the glory of his palace to travel And as he surveys the land, the king may travel through the filthiest and most disgusting places, places that are beneath his dignity. So too is the case when God looks on us and beholds our lives and sees the places where we live. He condescends to even look at us, not just the things of earth, but the things of heaven also. To even consider the affairs of men is a condescension on the part of God. We are so small. So insignificant, like grasshoppers, as Isaiah put it, that it's no small thing for him to take notice of us. We're reminded of Psalm 8-4, where we read, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And yet, as we consider the condescension of God to consider us, because he does consider us, we see that we're not so small and insignificant. After all, he cares about us. We're important to him, and we're important to him for a reason. Why are we important to him? One reason might be that we're made in his image. We bear his mark. We're made to be like him. That might be a good reason for God to take an interest in the affairs of men. But more importantly, for the Christian For the people of God, for his servants, we bear his name. For the sake of his name, he takes an interest in the affairs of men. 
And more than that, he is moved, and he takes action in our world. Consider these examples of God's action for his name's sake, and these aren't all of them. There are many more. 1 Samuel 12, 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Ezekiel twenty forty four, And you shall know that I am the Lord, when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Daniel nine nineteen, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. God's interest is no passing interest. He is a living and active God. He is engaged. He has a plan for us. And he is bringing that plan to fruition in his own time. Praise the Lord. Point three. The Lord is the redeemer of his people forever. Verses seven to nine read, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let us consider life to the barren. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and let us consider for a moment Hannah's prayer. While you're turning there, Recall that Hannah was a barren woman, and she had prayed that God might provide her with a son. God answered her prayer and provided her with Samuel, who would grow up in the house of God and become the high priest of Israel. After Samuel was born, Hannah offered up a prayer of praise to the Lord, which, as we will see, includes a striking similarity to our psalm. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. Verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Surely Psalm 113 is a direct meditation on Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. What a beautiful prayer. Conveying to us her knowledge that God is sovereign over all of our circumstances. Consider Job, having lost ten children, all of his servants, all of his flocks, and all of his wealth in a single day. Consider his despair as he sat alone in the ash heap, scraping his diseased flesh from his body, wondering how his life could have been turned upside down so quickly. And yet, in the end, God restored him. As Job said to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God restored him, giving him twice as much as he had before, and he died an old man full of days. 
Friends, no matter what condition we might find ourselves in, no matter how unchangeable and hopeless it may seem, no matter how out of control we may feel, God is in control. As the old hymn goes, Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know he holds my hand. Finally, let us consider raised up to sit with princes. God raises the poor from the dust, the needy from the ash heap, to sit with princes. This is rich language, and it's here that we find the most gospel-rich portion of our passage. As we unpack this together, I want to first establish that the poor and the needy here is us. Sure, we have our physical problems. We have our health problems. We have our financial problems. We have our political problems. We have our family problems. But our greatest problem is the problem of our sin. Our sin is a death sentence, for the wages of sin is death. The reason for all human suffering is sin. We are a people who are in bondage, in bondage to our flesh and to our sin. We are dying in our bodies, and we are dead already in our spirit. We are incapable of doing good, incapable of pleasing God. David writes that we have been sinful from conception and that all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. In the book of Romans, we read, there is no one who does good. No, not even one. In our sin, we stand condemned before a holy God. This is our dire condition. As Ezekiel writes, we are dry bones. Only God can save us. Only God can take that which is dead and make it alive again. We can't save ourselves. We need a Redeemer. As Paul writes in the book of Romans, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? The people of God are the people who know their need of him and find their need fulfilled in him. Now God has shown us over the course of time that he is really good at redeeming his people. Hebrews 11 presents a powerful meditation on the history of God's people, how God has rescued them over and over again, how he has kept them, and how they trusted in God, that he would one day redeem them from their sin. We'll study this history in depth on Wednesday night. Hebrews 11 covers the lives of Cain and Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, Moses, the tribes of Israel, Gideon, Samson, David, and Samuel, and more. It recounts their trust in God and their faith in his promise of a messianic kingdom. It recounts how their redemption was assured, though it had not yet been realized, and their faith was credited to them as righteousness. Now listen carefully. This whole book of Psalms, This chapter, Psalm 113, all this talk about God's name and his servants and his power and his redemption and his kingship speaks to the coming of his kingdom and our place in it. Friends, the culmination of our forward-looking hope for redemption has arrived. Our redemption has come, 
and the man, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. He came and lived a life we could not live, a life of perfect obedience to God. He died a death he did not deserve, a death on a cross. His blood has purchased salvation for all who would ever repent of their sins and turn to follow him. He now sits at the right hand of God the Father. He has promised to return, heralding the arrival of the long-sought-for kingdom of God. God raised him up, vindicating everything he had ever said about himself. When he returns, he will raise us up from the dust, from the ash heap, those who belong to him, to sit with him in the courts of his eternal kingdom. Friends, this is how we are redeemed by our loving God. This is our hope. This is how we can praise him forever and ever in the courts of his temple, praising him with shouts of holy, 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 worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise the Lord. Friends, as we consider this psalm, let me ask you, how fulfilling has your worship been lately? Is there something holding you back, some obstacle? Pray that God would enable you to worship him in spirit and in truth? Have you committed to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Are you serving him well? Pray that God would help you to grow in your spiritual strength. Is your hope invested in things of this world, in politics or finances or entertainment instead of in the Lord? Pray that God will help you shed your idols, that you might renew your focus on him. To the non-Christian who may be here, let me ask you, have you no fear of God? Do you feel no conviction over your sin? Do you not know who he is and what he has done and what he will do? Or perhaps, if you do feel conviction for your sin, do you feel that you are too sinful for God to save My friends, there is no one beyond his grasp. Pray to God, cry out to him, that he would bring you into his refuge. Praise the Lord, that he has made a way for us to be made right with him again. We should conclude. The servants of God will praise his name forever, because he deserves our praise, because he is mighty in power, because he loves us, and because he has redeemed us through the saving work of his Son, Jesus Christ. Consider our Lord Jesus Christ.
Who has been a better servant of God than he? Who has kept the law better than he? Who has humbled himself more than he? Who has carried more sin on his shoulders than he? Who has been lifted up from the grave as he has been? Who now sits in glory in a seat higher than he? How appropriate that Jesus, on the night in which he would be betrayed, would sing this psalm, praising God for the promise of redemption, praising God for the promise of his kingdom. Consider Jesus singing this psalm of praise to God, praising God for a promise that he was mere moments away from fulfilling. As he approached the hour of his crucifixion, where we, his people, see the moment of his greatest triumph, where he would receive a crown made of thorns, where he would be lifted up on a throne made of wood, where he would hold in his hands scepters made of iron, and where his name would be written for all the world to see, the King of the Jews. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. Thank you for Scott, Travis, and for his work in lifting you high and making you beautiful as you are, allowing us to see your glory and your power and your might. Give us grace now to respond to you appropriately in song. Behold our God. Consider the Christ. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and this word. Please bless us as we sing together now. In Jesus' name, amen.